in this film, the special effects actually really are special. There's some really nifty effects here, but they don't go overboard like so many contemporary films do. Like so many contemporary films, you have that staff of hundreds of people working on the digital effects, right? And they all go to town. They all do as much as they can. It's just like overkill, overboard, too much. Again, Jordan Peele's uh, intelligence here is such that he says, no, we don't want to show the monster, I'll call it the monster, too soon. And even when we show it, it's oftentimes in a sort of peekaboo fashion. It's hiding in the clouds, it makes a quick appearance, you hear it as much as see it. That is really scary. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, the show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today we're going to talk about Note and Thor, Love and Thunder. And we're going to start off with Note, Mike, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this movie. It had so much press coming into it, so many expectations, because it's Jordan Peele. And, you know, his previous two movies have just been so groundbreaking in so many ways. It's so interesting. And then this one comes along, and I think it's actually the best of the three, although I really, really love Get Out. Is it just because they actually got something in there about Edward Mybridge? I mean, you know, they start off with like one of the most iconic symbols of early, early film with the black guy on a, on a horse and showing uh, the animation of the horse moving. They had me at that moment. Mike, what about you? Well, you and I are film professors. <laughs> so as self-professed professors, film geeks in that sense, I always talk about Edward Moybridge in, in my film history classes. If you talk about the or origins of cinema and really pre-cinematic uh, events that, that are relative there, you know what? Edward Moybridge was a photographer working in California. And in the 1870s, he was fascinated by what he called animal locomotion. Namely, you know, humans are animals too, but what if you could take a series of still photographs of an animal moving and take them in such quick succession that when you line the photos up, you have a, the simulation, the sense of movement. So not to start giving an academic lecture because I'll paraphrase my, my lecture notes. But anyway, the fact that back in the 1870s, he's doing this already. So when you look at the resulting photographs, you do see you know, how human beings and animals actually move. And the photos are shot just like seconds apart. And so you really get, you line them up and you have that. You can also, and this is something he did, have what we would call like a flip book approach. Namely, if you have still photos and then you like flip them quickly, you really do get a sense of actual movement. So what Marie alluded to is the very beginning of the film, where you have something that Moybridge did in 1878, where he has a rider on, on, on a horse. And then if you have the, the photos flipping quickly, that way you really do sense, you know, movement. What the movie does very smartly, and this is a very smart film in all kinds of ways, is that the uh, protagonists are a brother and sister living in California, and they supply horses to TV and movie productions. So, you know, you always need animal wranglers, right? So this is the case where like, if you need a horse in your TV commercial or sitcom, whatever, they train animals with that in mind. And it's in the midst of doing this kind of, you know, commercial production where, and I love the sister character because she's like so forthright and so outspoken. And, and she's talking about how you see that, that Edmund Moybridge, you know, photo there. That's my, you know, great, great, you know, grandfather. And, and her brother off to the side adds another great, you know, see that? She said, yeah, and there's another great, you know, but, but again, that, that jocular sense. And the film already gives you a sense of, okay, this is going to be a really outrageous science fiction story but it always has at least reminders or points of connection to 
the social realities of our day. You know, this African-American brother and sister, what they do for a living, their family history, at which of course relates to the role played and or not played as you will, you know, of blacks in, in American film history, you know, and she's pointing out, look, even before cinema, here's a writer that, you know, is our relation. And these are fictional characters, but it's riffing on a real photo, a real event that way. To remind people or, or to tell people who maybe haven't seen the film and don't know it, it's got a really outrageous, deliciously outrageous kind of premise because they're working on their ranch in California and something funny is going on. And, you know, I'm not spoiling anything by saying it's a UFO movie, but, the, you know, it's also in that respect what we would call a genre mashup. It's going to take the science fiction genre of UFOs and it's going to have that mashed up against a Western and some of the conventions of the Western, going all the way back to that rider on a horse in the Mybridge photograph, and of course, just simply the, the rural California setting and the horses on the ranch and, and all that. It doesn't have as much direct commentary as Get Out and Us in terms of Jordan Peele's movies about race relations. It's not as immediately and overtly pointed as that, but it's there. And periodically there's scenes where it's there. And it's kind of nice in some ways that he's, this is a lighter, more enjoyable. When I say more enjoyable, I just mean easier film in the sense of it's not hitting all the hot button issues, like in a way where you have to like sit up and take notice of that. But what I did like about it was the genre mashup. And although it's highly original with what he does there, I've got to say, in all fairness, that there was a somewhat similar film back in 2011 called, guess what, Cowboys and Aliens, starring Daniel Craig, among others, which I actually rather enjoyed back then. And that was a film where the distinction is, in Cowboys and Aliens, it takes place in 1875. So it's the most traditional of Western settings. And then suddenly you have UFOs popping up in a Western. I mean, that's so unexpected and so outrageous. And the film has a lot of fun with that. When we think about UFOs in cinema, we typically don't think about them in period pieces. By that, I mean films that, you know, they're taking place in the 19th century, for instance. We just don't expect to see UFOs in a John Ford movie or something, right? It's not the Wild West as we have it through film history. When we think about them in contemporary cinema, they're almost always being used, UFOs that is, in films that take place in the present day. Now, it gets more complicated in retrospect when we think about all those schlocky grade B science fiction movies in the 1950s, so many of which involve not just playing Ninth Matter Space, but so many others that involve flying saucers coming down. At the time those came out, those movies, it was Cold War hysteria. We were worried about communist invasion, worried about all these threats from outside. Why not from outer space? We had the atomic bomb maybe to blame for some of this as well. All that gets percolated or worked into those 1950s sci-fi movies with flying saucers. When we watch those 50s movies now, of course, we think about them as commentaries on what Americans were thinking about creatively, imaginatively in the 50s, right? I mean, those movies are now period pieces for us, but when they first came out, of course, those were UFOs coming down. And, and you know, if you're going to the movies in 1955, that's a UFO coming down in that movie in 55 in a contemporary setting. So anyway, flip it to the present. So you watch this movie, which is very much set in the present, and you have UFOs touching down. But again, there's a sense of that earlier cinematic history of UFOs in movies and pre-cinematic history of, of you know, an African-American rider on a horse in an Edward Mybridge photograph from 1878. This movie has a lot of references to movies. 
whether, you know, Spielberg and, you know, any number of other directors who've dealt with this kind of material. In fact, you know, on one of the office walls, there is a poster for Buck and the Preacher, you know, with, with Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. A reminder that, you know, when we think about the Wild West, when we think about ranching and all those things, for most of its Hollywood history, it was a quote-unquote white genre. Almost always, you know, you had white protagonists and maybe one or two supporting players, and certainly the Indians who would be characters of color. But, you know, in movies from like the 70s onward, you know, like, like that poster I just mentioned, you have movies with that kind of Western subject matter, but with a black cast. A reminder that there were black cowboys, that that's valid subject matter, too. And so this movie implicitly and sometimes explicitly, like with the poster on the wall, reminds you that this African-American brother and sister, you know, they're living on a ranch. They're, they're part of a, a ranching tradition. They're part of a Western tradition of black ranchers out there, in this case, in, in California. And again, that's one, one of the ways in which the film is really smart, how it works so much into it that way. What it's also really smart about, or part of the intelligence, if you will, is that it really does a nice job of balancing the comic elements and the more serious elements. And it's one of the reasons why, as I watched the film, I was really alert. I mean, like, bolt upright in my seat watching. It's like, what's going to happen next? And Jordan Peele, as a filmmaker, is really gifted, technically, at how to build suspense, how, how just simply to have the dialogue paced in just the right way. And it's just really, really very, very intelligent, very sophisticated filmmaking. And so if we talked about the use of music and the cinematography and all those craft aspects, yeah, right down the line, it's a really well-made film. And honestly, you know, it's just really enjoyable. I mean, I had so much fun watching this and I saw it with a very crowded theater on you know, like opening night and the audience really went for it. It was mostly young audience. It was kind of a young and hip audience and people really went for this film and I had a really good time. And you know how I, I like to be grouchy? I couldn't be grouchy here. I was having a really good time. Well, I had the same sort of experience. Everybody in the theater was pretty much younger than me. And I agree with you completely that Jordan Peele has a certain kind of thing he's trying to do with movies that I think he's very good at it. He reminds me of Tyler Perry in that way, in that someone told me once that they always went to see Tyler Perry's movies because he always had some sort of message in there. And I think Jordan Peele does the same thing with his movies. And the things that I found in this one were kind of an examination of the nation of spectacle and trying to get viewers to pay for what you could deliver, you know, getting that Oprah shot, the shot that, you know, if you were able to show the picture of the UFO, Oprah would, you know, not be able to not get you on her show because it would be so compelling. The idea of the price of fame and child stardom and what you lose when you succeed in show business. I thought, uh, you know, the exploitation of tragedy he gets all of those ideas kind of in there with, you know, the story of Gordy the Chimp and the child star who kind of came up through you know, what happened on the show with, with the chimp. There's these sort of flashbacks to these scenes of spectacle. What did you think, Mike? Did you feel that was being underlined a couple of times? It, not only is it being underlined, it's underscored from the very opening of the film. There is an opening text before you really get to the film itself, even from the Book of Nahum. And this is a text in which God is threatening, you know, punishment in Nineveh. And, you know, it's one of those Old Testament passages where, where it's a very stern kind of warning from God as to what he's going to do. And in that Old Testament book, and this is a, a direct quote from that book, and it's directly quoted at the beginning of the film, I will make a spectacle of you 
So we're told that in text before we even really get to images and really get to the film itself. And then the film is constantly underscoring the extent to which in a movie that comes out in 2022, a very contemporary setting, Jordan Peele's going to have a lot of commentary, obviously, about them as black ranchers, about race relations, whatever. But you know what? Unlike his first two films, where it tends to be like really blunt and direct and, you know, in the dialogue and other ways, just giving that to you. This is a film in which it's there, but it's really just meant to be an entertainment as well. It's just really meant to be a lot of fun to watch. So it doesn't really dwell on some of those points where I think the earlier films and dialogue would have dwelt a bit more. And the fact that we are in a media-saturated society. So Marie's absolutely right with some of the plot references she's making there, that so often characters in this film want to make sure they have the right documentation. You know, so if we went into great detail in terms of, you know, whether it's still photos or having a, a documentary filmmaker come in and get some footage or try to get some footage, ways in which, you know, we need to get like all this captured, documented, so that, you know, whether to go on Oprah or just to get the word out, that people will know it and believe it. And that gets all wrapped up in notions of the film industry. After all, these two characters, brother and sister, work on, I don't want to say the edges of the film industry, but they're supplying the film industry, right? They're providing horses for things. They're they're part of that overall production process. But this is the kind of event which could catapult them to, to media stardom, to celebrity, if you will. You know, the fact that they will have chronicled, you know, a flying saucer or whatever it is above the ranch. And then as other characters, secondary characters get pulled into the, the, the storyline, you realize that in our society nowadays, you want to get famous. And, and some of the characters will like literally put their lives on the line to try to get that image to try to get the video or still photo of the UFO and thinking, well, why are they putting their lives on the line like this? Is it scientific inquiry, blah, blah, blah? Well, they want to be famous and rich and all those things too. And Marie, pick up on this strand because I think this is one of the more interesting thematic elements in the film, the extent to which you know UFOs touch down in contemporary films and they tell us a lot about our society down here on earth. We learn almost nothing about the UFO society. In this film, even less than in most UFO movies, right? In this film, you really know very little about what this threat from above is. We do kind of sort of see it, but what do we know about it? Where are they from? What do they want? Are they friendly? Do they have, they're not friendly, but, but do they have names? You, you know, this film, and I think to its credit, doesn't try to give us that. Because if you try to give that explanation, so often it's like really hokey or just bizarre, or just like, oh, brother, don't bother. You know, it's almost better when it's just like a, an implied and then explicit threat. And before I hand it back to you, let me just underscore one of the other things I like so much about the film. When I mentioned earlier the pacing of it, this film has a really deliberate opening section. It's not one of these monster movies where right from the get-go, there's the monster, and then you're already fighting it, and it's climax after climax or anti-climax. This film has a slower build, and I like that. Think about all the, some of the most effective monster movies where in the early scenes, you either don't see the monster at all, or it's just a flash, a glimmer, in this case, something in the clouds. And I like the fact that it makes the audience sort of get on the edge of the seat, waiting for what, what we call the reveal waiting for the big moment. And, and to this movie's credit, it deliberately takes its time. Most movies nowadays are a little too hasty to like cut to the chase on it, aren't they? Like, here's the monster. This one has a way of building slowly. It makes you really nervous. And then it, it gets to like a great scene where the sister, you know, she's looking up at the skies and she's like shouting, no, no, run. And I love that moment in any sci-fi or horror movie where you just you have the character verbalizing what we're all thinking, run, because <laughs> they're here, they've arrived and now we see them. Now, Mike, I read a review that compared this movie to being a cross between Close Encounters of the Third Kind 
and Jaws, which I thought was a really interesting juxtaposition. So I wanted to see what you thought of that. Also, the fact that, you know, the UFO itself is sort of this vacuum cleaner in the sky that sucks you up whole, but then spits back out coins and keys, which I thought was a really interesting metaphor in terms of thinking about being swallowed alive in terms of your career in Hollywood. And it would consume you completely, but spit out things that make you a personal person. You know, you would have keys for specific doors, you would have money, that that would not be something that the beast would want to actually eat. So I wanted to get your take on that. And also that apparently the title may be an acronym for not of planet Earth, or is it NOPE? as in refusing temptation? On your second point, it's left rather open-ended. And so I speculate along the very same lines as you do. The film itself, in terms of the script, doesn't really force or push that on us, right? It, it's le- And I like the fact it's just a single word. I mean, I like a nice punchy title like that sometimes. But in terms of, you know, the way in which this alien entity, whatever you want to call it, operates, you've described essentially its digestive process. And so I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. It's rather gross to even think about the, the details involved there. But in terms of, again, the Spielberg connection, think about in Jaws now, and going all the way back to 1975, special effects weren't then what they are now. And as you may recall, when when Spielberg was doing Jaws, he had a mechanical shark he was working with that they nicknamed Bruce, and it was always breaking down. And even when it wasn't breaking down, it looked fake, because of course it was fake. So Spielberg turned adversity to advantage in Jaws. For certainly the opening sections of the film and much of it, you either don't quite see it, or it's a fin in the water, or it's that spectacular music, which is generating the suspense more than anything you actually see. Um, he has very clever ways of building suspense until the big reveal. We're fine. At some point, you do have to have the shark break the surface, right? The shark has to come up and eat somebody, you know, and, and that's, you know, in some way, a delicious moment cinematically because we've been waiting for that all along. Well, special effects now are so much better. And in this film, the special effects actually really are special. There's some really nifty effects here, but they don't go overboard like so many contemporary films do. Like so many contemporary films, you have that staff of hundreds of people working on the digital effects, right? And they all go to town. They all do as much as they can. It's just like overkill, overboard, too much. Again, Jordan Peele's uh, intelligence here is such, he says, no, we don't want to show the monster, I'll call it the monster, too soon. And even when we show it, it's oftentimes in a sort of peekaboo fashion. It's hiding in the clouds. It makes a quick appearance. You hear it as much as see it. That is really scary. Uh, I always say in a monster movie, and this is me in terms of all the monster movies I've seen, the sense of anticipation really gets you nervous and sweating that you see a glimmer in the shadows at night, a flash, you know, something deadly. But what is it? When you finally reveal it, it can be really awful, really scary. Like, oh, my gosh, that's the monster. But in almost any monster movie, after about 10 seconds of that, at some point as a viewer, don't you kind of shrug and say, okay, that's the monster. Not that you're going to invite it over for tea, but you just feel like you've seen it, you know what it can do, and, and there are no more surprises that way. This film actually, in a very healthy sense, keeps you guessing much of the way through. Like, what is this thing? What are its motives? And as Marie explained earlier in terms of its eating habits, those become pretty clear, but even there, you're sort of wondering, like, if you're going out for lunch, do you have to go this far? I mean, you know, can't you find a meal closer to home? And the film is not really going to go into any sort of ludicrous detail trying to explain and or justify all this. You know, that one of the best things about some horror movies is the fact that the monster, whatever it is, is a given, you know, a donné, it's there. 
And you're almost better off not having some sort of hokey backstory explained to you. And I like the fact that Jordan Peele doesn't even attempt that here. And the characters even, they, they run, not that they take it in stride, but they don't ask a lot of the questions most of us would ask. Like, why did you, of all the ranches in the world, why did you touch down on mine? And, and you know, and even, even in certain, and I don't want to go into too much detail by way of spoiling anything in the film, but in terms of, you know, should you look or not look, that becomes a point in the film, you know, how should you respond to the monster when it's tracking you? The film makes clear what some of the rules of the game are, as I call them, but it doesn't go into any sort of like really hokey rationalizations or, or explanations there. It's just like, well, okay, here's this thing we're fighting. What can we do to try to survive? And if anything, fight back against it. And by the end of the movie, and I refuse to spoil that whatsoever, but they sort of figure out some ways in which they can maybe fight back against this thing. And that's where it's really a comedy as much as anything else. Jordan Peele's just having a lot of fun with it. So you can talk about, as we are, serious messages and social commentary, blah, 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 cinematic history, all that's there. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with sheer entertainment. And this is entertainment that does have some, you know, serious underpinnings or, or accoutrements. But just watching it, it's just fun to watch a UFO movie. It's also clever that they sort of open with the idea of Edward Moybridge. And then they end with, again, a black man on a horse, which is Daniel Kaluuya. Just very clever on so many levels. But while we're out there in deep space, Mike, let's discuss Thor, Love and Thunder. Now, I will say one thing very fun about this movie was I saw it in Screen X. Screen X is amazing because it sort of wraps around you, like really putting you into the world. And, of course, it dumps you immediately into this world with this character played by Christian Bale in what I call his Gollum role. And Christian Bale is amazing in this. He's the best thing about the movie. And then it turns into this kind of Saturday morning cartoon version of the Thor franchise. Well, this is a film that uh, I liked initially, and then it's sort of, not that it lost me as it went along, but here's, here's the deal. Let's talk about the superhero movies. There's always a, a conceptual issue to deal with here, namely when you have this kind of cartoonish origin, uh, how seriously to take it. Now, you and I in previous shows have talked about a number of superhero movies that sometimes, to their discredit, took themselves too seriously. You know, it's like, you know, really dark shadows and ominous storylines and, and raining all the time and really gloomy. You know, you know, what I mean? you and I have gone through this, right? We're just like, oh, you know, it's comic book material. What are you doing? Like, this is not Shakespeare or something, you know, but films just took themselves so seriously that way. And so we'd sort of knock them that way. But this is a genuine creative issue to deal with. Should you take like the really serious approach showing that, no, this isn't just you know, Saturday matinee, you know, goofy cartoon stuff. There's something serious here, something ponderous, something, you know, mythical. Okay, blah, 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 you know, how those movies take themselves seriously. But conceptually, should you err on that side or err if you're going to err or at least move to the other side? Namely, it's comic book material. Have fun with it. Now, this is where the film sort of lost me as a viewer. When I say lost me, I just lost interest in it after a while. This is a film that very quickly establishes that it's not going to take the material too seriously. Uh, we've had four Thor movies in the past uh, 11 years, and we could talk about you know, how they treat the material. This one definitely treats it as self-parody. This is a film that is just goofball. It's just having a lot of fun with the material. Some of that works for me really well. And yes, we'll talk about Russell Crowe. Some of it works really well for me. But after a while, I just thought it was kind of just silly. It just, you know, and this is where I make a distinction between something that I find silly and funny and something I find silly and just stupid. And this was sort of hitting the silly, stupid button for me. A lot of it just was sort of falling flat that way. So 
Although the film only runs, when I say only runs 125 minutes, that's short by superhero movie standards. And so it's fairly tight in storytelling. But for all the scenes where I did smile and kind of enjoy it, there were others where I just said, oh, come on, give me a break. It's just, it's not that clever. It's not that funny. They're sort of sending it up. And I had nothing like to latch on to thematically that I could, that I could yeah, do I want to take it seriously? Well, at some level, maybe I do. It just seemed to me this was all sort of tossed off. What do you think? Yeah, I agree completely. And I think the tone is because of Taika Waititi directing it. And I think he's very witty in other things he has, you know, been at the helm of. But in this respect, it just seemed like too many, everything ended in a joke, even a serious moment ended in a joke. It just seemed like a very childlike point of view that I thought really got old really fast. Now, I also will say, it was clear to me that there was an entire universe of interconnecting stories because they'd uncover something like starting off with Thor quitting the Guardians of the Galaxy. We're like, oh, right, that's right. He was part of that franchise. And then, you know, you find these clues to the Eternals from the, you know, recently saw that movie, I guess, what was six, six months ago, not really realizing how it fit into like the overall story. It's a lot of things to keep in mind. You need like maps and, you know, flowcharts and things to understand how everything fits together. And I think that it's obvious that there's more to it that you don't, you can't quite put together while you're watching it. But I'm sure if you're really into this world, you would be completely 100% on top of how all these things fit together. For the average viewer, it is a lot of characters and a lot of different worlds that you're supposed to understand. But, you know, like I said, you would need to have worked out all of that beforehand to enjoy it at that level. So instead, like I said, it seems more like a Saturday morning cartoon with characters that you like and, you know, the costumes are great and you know chris hemsworth has never been in better shape in his life some of the jokes land and they're very funny others just seem tedious where it just doesn't work the way the other thor movies did what did you think mike yeah i agree with you completely on this point it really is kind of tiresome after a while in terms of the secondary characters some of them really are funny and others not so funny, though they're meant to be. The uh, female lead is uh, an astrophysicist, Jane Foster, who becomes Mighty Thor. She's played by Natalie Portman. She's okay, but you know what? It, it seems obligatory in movies like this to emphasize female empowerment. So yes, I'm all for that. You know, I'm voting for that, et cetera. But in a film like this, it just seems like they just hit that button. You know, and so that's what she's going to represent. So it's just kind of like predictable and, and standard issue that way. So in the flow chart, that's like really predictable. In terms of the uh, Christian Bale character you mentioned, I had to remind myself it was Christian Bale. As Gore, the God Butcher, the character name, he's almost unrecognizable in terms of makeup and prosthetics. And so I often wonder, like, why even hire a great actor like Christian Bale and then basically like cover him and coat him and make him unrecognizable? The character doesn't make much sense. He's an obvious villain, but there's not too much depth to the villain, if you will. So a mixed assessment, both of the Christian Bale and Natalie Portman characters. One character I had to enjoy, how could you not? Because this is kitsch that goes so over the top that you got to laugh at it. Russell Crowe plays Zeus, and he kind of prances around, and it almost looks like a miniskirt, you know, the, his version of the toga. And not to spoil all the jokes there, but sometimes I laughed at it just because it was like so out there. And even though even that wears a, a little thin after a while, the notion of having Zeus kind of prancing around like that was well, kind of funny. It's not the usual way I think about, about the Greek pantheon. And so the movie's having some fun with that. But you know what? When I mentioned those several characters and the actors playing them, it just seems too busy. I love your use of the word flowchart. You need a flowchart for all that. And just too uneven. There would be a really funny scene and another one where the jokes just fall flat. 
and it just doesn't really move. It doesn't flow very smoothly. It doesn't really cohere or hold together. It just seems kind of arbitrary and random and just, you know, goofy. And, you know, when you're going to be goofy like that, that's hard to carry off at feature length. Know what I mean? It, it just after a while, things tend to fall flat. I thought it was hilarious having Russell Crowe play Zeus. I mean, who else would think, oh, I could, I'm, I'm totally Zeus. It's so Russell Crowe. I want to say, I, I can tell you why Christian Bale did this role, because initially he said he didn't want to do anything more like this because doing Batman was just so grueling. But then his kids begged him. So that's why he, he did the movie. I want to say one thing I found incredibly confusing was that you have a character obviously named Thor, and then they had a character named Gore and another character named Korg. I mean, what were they thinking? All of these names were just so similar. But Mike, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.